Hello, Adam Witt. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello. Good. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm totally stoked about this one, especially. And I've said that a couple times, but this one I, I can actually say especially. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't till recently that I found out that uh, you were born about 45 minutes down the road from where I from where I live and where I was born. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, right. Thanks. This is a, a very similar birth. We have very similar birth stories, I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and uh, yeah, let's get right into this. I'm stoked because there's a lot of a lot of local places I want to ask if you're familiar with. Uh, all right. Oh, I should have worn my. Uh, uh, I do have a uh, Oxford, Ohio shirt that uh, uh, the um, the the sub shop there, the Bagel and Deli shop. Someone got me that for Christmas a couple years ago. <laughs> I've been there a couple times. Uh, got Houston Woods out by there. That out yeah. that way. Yeah. 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 Good yeah. time. It's a paradise. It's a paradise. It really is right in the middle of Ohio. No one would ever really realize it. It's such a hidden paradise, and it's so funny. I talk to people. Well, we'll get to we'll get to Oxford. We'll get to Oxford. <laughs> uh, but yes, the name of the show is from birth to Smowdown. So, Adam Witt, where were you born? Let's start with birth. Uh, in, in the words of uh, what is the uh, Schizopolis, a Steven Soderbergh uh, movie? Uh, First, I am born, then the trouble begins. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, that's great. And yeah. that's right down the road. Yeah. I'm trying to think of which hospital was, uh, it's probably the, um, uh, good Samaritan, I believe. Oh, uh, they're in Trotwood. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah. Arena. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that where it's at? It's been a while since I've been there, but, uh, yeah. Uh, good. I think they've actually shut that hospital down, uh, within the last couple of years or so. Well, I've got other stories that said maybe that should be shut down. But uh, my birth was one of their successes. I'll say that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, uh, where did, did your did your family come from Dayton, like generations? Or did they move in there from somewhere else? There was a whole generation in Dayton. And before that, it was the woods. It was the hills of Kentucky. So, like, I there was a – I mean, talk about the, the need for um, – upward mobility so that you don't remain, you know, uh, impoverished your entire life. I mean, the possibilities of upward mobility because of the depression, world war two and uh, opportunities like my grandpa built the road. He, you know, one of his, he was one of the first to leave the, the Hills to, to get a job in the big city, the big city being Franklin, Kentucky. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think my grandpa built the road to Franklin, Kentucky, and which you know kind of separated from his family as more of a like an outward bound type of guy. Like I'm going to the big city of Franklin, Kentucky. Uh, but uh, so, and then it was just you know, then there was more factory work and and stuff like that. So my family and and my grandparents like wanted out of the hills of Kentucky. It's a very interesting thing when you're born into poverty, which, you know, I was as well, you know, a different kind of poverty than they were born into, but that you, that desire to get out of it, that it, 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 I don't think it was imbued to them by their parents who were coal miners and, um, or, or, you know, just doing whatever work came by. They were pretty exploited as workers because uh, the companies would come through to cut down the, the trees and make barrel staves. So they're like the barrel stave people would come by and they would pay the locals the least amount possible, you know, sort of like what we do with tech now, you know, that paid them the least amount possible and basically exploited them. And at that time, they had a thing called the company store. If you ever, if you ever heard the song, I sold my soul to the company store. Uh, and boy, the big scam, 
you know, and somebody had to step in and stop this, was that you got paid in dollars, not real dollars, dollars that were only uh, able to be used at the company store, which the company owned who had paid you the money to begin with. <laughs> like, wow, that's a that's a just a one stop exploitation. We have a much more complex system of exploitation now. But yeah, um, so uh, so yeah, they got they got they wanted out of there so bad. And I always admire that of like and in one generation, they got to the big the big, big city, you know, Dayton, Ohio, uh, or the outer uh, boroughs of, of Dayton, Ohio. And, uh, you know, had their classic post-war, you know, numerous kids. And, uh, and then within a generation, I was the first person in my entire family to go to college. So, that, and that happens in two generations. I mean, that's insane. Um, I feel, I, all right, I've made it to Hollywood in, in terms of where I live, <laughs> not in terms of movies you can go see, but, you know, but, but it's like, so I feel like maybe that was a part of me as well of like, all right, well, and you know, and, and I'm growing up in a, I mean, again, we were poor, but we weren't poor, poor, like dirt poor, like grandma's parents, you know, we're dirt poor people uh, with, you know, a lot of the problems that come with that too, malnutrition and, you know, things like that and early death and, um, but you know, so I didn't have any of that, but I still felt in my own way, it's funny to look back on it, to be in a place like Dayton or Oxford and be like, I got to get out of here. I mean, what my grandparents came from, they had to get out of there. I was just like, I want to go make movies. <laughs> what made them pick Dayton? Was there something specific that drew them there or was it just kind of Dayton sounds nice? You know, I mean, I guess they could have picked any place along the way from Kentucky, the hills of Kentucky up to it. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's like you, you see the progress towards a larger city and larger economies as you go further and further north. You know, if you continued north from uh, Dayton, you would get to Cleveland, which is even bigger and has a bigger economy. And if you continue north of there, you get to Chicago and that, or New York, you know, and then you, the economy gets bigger and bigger. So, I mean, I, I think they just they got they got drawn from work. Mostly there was there was a, a GM. Uh, plant in Dayton, which ultimately ended up being my, my grandpa's uh, career. And he supervised the uh, change from people doing, putting one part on with a hand. There were no, there was no factory type thing. There were no machines. There were no robots. There were no, I mean, I guess there were belts that would move one thing and you move it to, you put one part on, pass it to the next guy or whatever they had, they had machined up. But, you know, by the time he retired, it was, you know, the big arms moving things and doing all this stuff. And he watched all that happen, you know? Man. Yeah. I remember when I was growing up, GM was huge. Like I, it, it was a real big deal uh, in Dayton. Um, sadly, it's, it's gone away, but yeah, was it was a big deal and a lot of people worked there that you would just run into it, it enabled my whole family. I mean, my whole family worked there and it just gave them this great quality of life because there was, you know, the wages were good. The overtime was good. The retirement was good. And, you know, and it was a time of like the boom economy too. Uh, so yeah, no, it really enabled the entire family to just, you know, have a really good lower middle-class life, which was huge compared to where we came from, you know? Yeah. Now, as far as Dayton's concerned, what specific area uh, did you come from? So I was born in Dayton and then uh, lived in Dayton for a few years and then uh, moved to Vandalia, uh, Ohio for kindergarten and first grade. And then uh, and then a crazy thing happened. I moved uh, very close to where you are from, which not a lot of people are from, uh, which is Arcanum, Ohio. Uh, we moved to Lewisburg, Ohio. And 
it's uh you know you look back on it and it's sort of a step back because we were in vandalia which is an outer borough of dayton you know uh, a lot bigger schools bigger things and we moved to a one-room schoolhouse in lewisburg ohio wow. uh, you know like the old one-room schoolhouse where they would teach you know kindergarten through whatever fifth grade or whatever in one room uh, you know and so that whole i had the, this house with this giant uh, uh, room and, you know, like a pass through to the kitchen because that's how they serve the meals and everything and, and offices upstairs, you know, it was like it was kind of laid out like a schoolhouse. But I was in the midst of hundreds of acres of woods, which is where my grandparents grew up, grew up, but I hadn't seen any of that yet. And so, you know, my parents feel a little bad for that because it's like, you know, it's a, a step backwards in terms of possibilities and education. Um, but, oh my God, I mean, all my friends and going out in the woods with BB guns and, you know, and just all that. I, I mean, I would come home. I was such a bad student because I, I wanted to do two things, run in the woods and watch movies. And that was it because homework and my parents were very permissive there. Some would call, someone would say it's bad parenting that you let, you, you usually have to make your kid get home from school, sit down, get your homework done. I mean, that's how all my cousins and everything were. I went over to their house and I was like, oh, we're sitting down and doing our homework. Okay. Okay. We'll do it. You know, and then you earn your time on the weekends or whatever to go out and play or uh, that sort of thing. So, but instead I would come home, I would drop my backpack, grab my BB gun and head out to the woods. And then, you know, and it was, and it was the time of like, all right, be back by sundown, yeah. you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's just running in the woods and the Creek and, you know, and out in nature. And, th and then you would meet friends. That was the thing. I didn't know the modern convention of having a neighbor <laughs> for many years. We did have one neighbor, but other than that, it was just, it became increasingly spread out. But you know, my second grade best friend, he was a 45 minute walk through the woods and you would walk and then you would climb the fence and go through the cow pasture and climb another fence. And there you were at Jeff's house, you know, and then, and then we'd go, you know, shoot BB guns in the backyard. It was like, you know, all right, the sun's starting to go down. Got to walk 45 minutes through cow pastures and woods and cornfields back to my house. But boy, with like, what a, what a way to grow up. I look back on it. It was great fondness. It was just a, a miraculous place to grow up, you know? Yeah, I, I have I loved it as a teenager and, and especially when you, when I got my license and then it's me and my friends piled in the car, driving around the country block, um, just hanging out, causing trouble and stuff, you know. Definitely causing trouble, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then a friend of ours was the first to get his license. Uh, and then and then it started becoming you could you my parents started seeing the sort of trouble that a bunch of hillbillies can get into, you know, in 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 once you start having access to go to other people's cornfields or, you know, go into town and doing the sort of stuff you you do in the woods uh, in the middle of town. So it, it got it got a little crazy. And that's uh, my parents decided, like, all right, let's kind of move a little closer back to the city. <laughs> How old were you when you when you were living in Lewisburg? Uh, this would be second grade through uh, freshman year. Oh, that's quite a while. Then. That's quite a while. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely my formative uh, life and you know my obsession with movies and everything that all comes from from there and uh, uh, yeah yeah it's uh, yeah it, it was a lot but boy it was a it was a great house it was a, just a cool I, I have dreams of going back and buying that place and redoing it or something because it's it ain't ever going to fall down it is just a solid brick but with that comes other problems because when it comes to the winter there's literally no uh, uh, insulation on the house and we had to line the house with hay bales 
to keep just the draft in the you know bottom part you know going down into the basement and stuff like that like to just hold that out we had to every winter we would have a, a farmer come and drop off hay bales and they would line the entire outside of the house and then you had to put you know all the plastic on the windows and everything i mean you had to barricade in like you like you know it was it was it was a cabin with slats you know and here comes the snow um yeah that was and you know i'd wake up and there would be ice on my goldfish bowl i remember that sometime i'm like hey, it's getting cold in this room at night but yeah yeah well uh off the air you'll have to give me the address i'll run but i'll run out there and take a picture of the house for you yeah tell me i i whenever i go back there i went back for a class reunion i went back and sometimes i'll just take the long route like if I go, because my parents still live in Kentucky, uh, and uh, well, my, my parents have separated, so in Dayton and Kentucky. So I make the trip, but you know, you could take the highway to Dayton, or you could take some of the classic country roads that I remember from when I was a kid. And uh, so I've, I've passed by the old place a few times. So I'll give you the address though, because it's a interesting layout, and you could see all the woods that we had around us. And and then I met in college, I met someone else from Arcanum, and then we related because we're like. Uh, oh, you know that creek behind the thing or whatever? And she's like, oh, I used to play in that creek. I was like, wow, that's just a crazy, uh, crazy connection. You know, much like the fact that you're from Arcanum, which is where our veterinarian was. <laughs> uh, uh, I almost, I don't know if it would matter or not, but if I, I almost dropped his name, um, I'll say it, man. It's a great plug as far as I'm concerned. Dr. Farce was, uh, was uh, our veterinarian from Arcanum. Um, oh, I, I'll have to find out if that's the name. I, I, I can't remember. I seem to remember it having a name of the place and yeah. not his name, but uh, yeah. He was great. He was great. My, my dog passed about five years ago or so, and uh, he was just absolutely great about it. Um, so yeah, but yeah, the same had all my animals went to Arcanum Vet. And, yeah, um, yeah, I, that's, our, that's our place, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was that tornado went through there in 92 or 94 or something. Oh, okay. A little, a little court. Well, did it? I'm not sure if it, if it went through much of Lewisburg or not. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we were gone by then. That's uh, I, cause uh, I, gra I graduated 91 in from uh, Talamanda high school in Oxford, Ohio. Okay. So you, so instead of moving back toward Dayton, you moved uh, a little bit further away toward Oxford. Yeah, yeah, we went to, and the idea was, and boy, my parents were clever, because, uh, well, what, it's, it's an interesting story, uh, that um, I got in some trouble, I was I was starting to, you know, I was getting into that time where you could get in a, a little more trouble, you were a little bigger, you you know, there were car access to cars and stuff like that, so I started getting in trouble in school, and I was always, like, the smartass, and I was always, like, the kid who acted out, but I usually, what I used to do was turn C pluses into Bs because I was at least active in the class and talking in the class and a lot of people weren't. And so I did get a lot of participation, but then that participation quickly turned to participation that they weren't that interested in. But again, this is like the young comedian in me. You know, I was discovering stand up. I was discovering movies and acting out in acting, you know. Um, so when uh, my parents go to visit the principal who had never had a problem with me for years and years and years and years and he's starting to be like you know i think this and this is the principal of this school and he goes i think this school's a bad influence on your son and they ended up talking and realized that uh my stepdad and my principal went to the same college and graduated the same year i believe and when he asked my stepdad, he's like, well, what do you want for your son? Uh, he was like, well, I'd like him to go to Miami of Ohio. And he's like, I don't know if that's going to happen. Even if, even if he gets 
straight A's for the rest of his time. The school doesn't have enough of a pedigree. And I, and I just, he's like, I, I think you need to, um, and what they, uh, conspired to do my principal and my parents was get me into the school system in Oxford, Ohio. And if, as long as you were there for three years, there was an agreement that, uh, that can, you know, you could graduate after three years in that school. There was an agreement that the university would let any student from Talawanda into that uh, college. And so that was going to be my only chance to go to that college. And so I went and, uh, uh, you know, uh, overperformed comparative to, to Lewisburg, underperformed comparative to the rest of the class, but I still got into college. And then I had to really put the, put the pedal to the metal because then they'll let you in. But if you screw up, they can kick you right out. You know? so, but, you know, I mean, at that point, I'm studying film, I'm studying video. I'm actually doing stuff that I want. And there's a big difference between grade school and college because you're like, uh, you know, and suddenly you're meeting friends that can quote Monty Python. Like I was, that idea was brand new, you know, and, and suddenly you're meeting people that can like, quote all of Scorsese's films. And, you know, you're like, OK, I'm in a very different place now. And uh, and then I discovered improv and forgot all about film for a while. <laughs> Um, I'm going to ask you about what kind of movies you were into at that at this point in time. Yeah, but I do, I do need to ask you about this now. Out there near Oxford, do you ever remember hearing about some old legend where there were these three hills and the and the the single motorcycle, the phantom motorcycle, phantom motorcycle, right? Yeah. The, the the curve where the girl died in the car crash, and then you would park there and flash your headlights in a single beam with. Did you ever try that? Not a kid growing up in that town didn't go do that. <laughs> in well, fact, in fact, I did that. This is this is funny. Now you're causing a flashback here because I completely forgot about this. And the friends, this is my my crew of friends who got their driver's license, I'd got mine, and so. Um, but one of the guys that I went and did that with is now the play-by-play -play guy on radio for the Washington Capitals. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just had a flashback. I'm like, oh, I did that with JT Walton. Um, but yeah, we all piled into the car like, let's go do it. Let's go do it. Let's go do it. And it turns out it is the, the legend was someone was coming down the hill on a motorcycle and there is a, a dead end curve at the end of that. You're coming this way and it just curved sharply. And the idea was the guy didn't see that. There was no reflectors at that time or whatever this guy supposedly happened. I'm sure this part is true. And, and just barreled through that fence into the woods, into a tree, and died. I'm sure that part is true. Um, but what it is, it's an optical illusion that there are those three hills, so a car from very far away looks like it's closer. It looks like it disappears and reappears, but I think it's just cars off in the distance. But you can see cars further off in the distance. I think it's an optical illusion. So we all went there, and you're supposed to honk your car three times. There's a house right there who's so annoyed at this, you know, and, and, and we honk three times and then all the lights turned on in that farmhouse. And you're like, oh, great. They're going to come yell at us. Um, but the more interesting thing about that was if when you hit that corner, if you take a right, the next house down is the scariest chainsaw massacre looking house you've ever seen. That was a hundred times scarier than this phantom motorcycle uh, it, because it was uh, it was like the 1923 like block mansion like the type of chainsaw massacre house in the remake like right. that sort of block mansion mm -hmm. which they actually have some in this really old neighborhood near me and each one of them looks like the chainsaw massacre house but they're in like middle of the city but uh, uh, the chainsaw massacre house 
The entire driveway was lined with garbage bags. They'd never had garbage pickup. The entire yard was taller than me because we had to turn around that driveway to go around. And I was like, I'm actually really scared right now that this, that house. So I wonder whatever happened to that house because it's a great plot of land, great house, good fixer upper opportunity. But what must that place have looked like inside? So right. yeah. Yeah, the Phantom Motorcycle. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> wow, that legend gets around. You guys knew about that too. Yeah, uh, well, I had no clue, but I, I hung out with some friends who were from West Manchester uh -huh. and went to National Trail a little bit closer out that National way. National Trail, right. Yes. Yep. So they uh, they made us aware of it one night and we piled and we were like, dude, we got to try this. So and now, sure, we saw it and it's, I don't know what we saw, but we saw something, so. Yeah, I think it's an optical illusion from the from the hill and the way it's the way, and I think also like uh, the way it's shaped in some way. There's a slight curve to it so that the cars do like you only see one of the headlights. Therefore, they call it the Phantom Motorcycle. You know, something like that. Right. Yeah, I, lo I love stuff like that. That would make a great podcast. Is all the local legends like that and people who did it, people who saw it, people who didn't see it. You know, um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I forgot all about that. Um, but at this time, you're going to college uh, there in uh, in Oxford at Miami. Yeah. What kind of films were you, like, what were your favorite movies to watch uh, on repeat or your rainy day movie? Well, I'll, uh, I'll tell you, my, this is my favorite story of pre-college. So I go to high school. It's a much fancier high school. And what's so funny about that is, it, you know, it's a much nicer high school. It's in a college town. All the kids are like, a lot of them are uh, professor students, you know. Uh, and um, so that, that was just a really great to have. You know, I miss my friends from the other school, but I forgot about it quickly because I make friends pretty quick. I mean, you could tell I'm a pretty social guy. But um, uh, so what... The summer, I mean, I was way into, I mean, I'm a Spielberg and Lucas guy, obviously. Um, and, and I don't just mean Star Wars Lucas. I mean, I know THX 113. And I've seen that movie, you know, 50 wow. times. It's a masterpiece. It's a, if I, if I told you Stanley Kubrick made that movie, you would have very few arguments while watching. But, um, but uh, so yeah, Spielberg, Lucas, I mean, the real pop stuff. Now, back in Lewisburg, when we first got our VCR, it was all horror. It was all slasher horror. Me and my friends and my friends that I got rowdy with and, and you know, caused me to end up in the principal's office. We were the Fangoria magazine kids. We were the Tom Savini's, you know, VHS, learn how to do blood effects. I mean, we had a just say no program thing that we had to do where everybody had to do a, uh, a story about, you know, a cautionary tale about why not to do drugs. And me and my friends all uh, got together and built a prison, uh, this sort of prison thing in my friend's barn in Lewisburg. Um, and uh, I decided to make a blood pack. So when, when the guy gets all messed up on PCP, where our, our cautionary tale was about PCP. You could tell we were watching movies. A lot of movies, like, well, not a lot of PCP going around. I mean, I didn't see any marijuana even, you know, mostly those you know, the, those guys knew how to drink, you know, the people that were already experimenting with anything. It was, it was booze, but, uh, I, I don't, I didn't see any drugs. I mean, I'm sure somebody was doing drugs, but it wasn't PCP, but anyway, so the guy does PCP and he gets, he gets this incredible strength. Cause this is what we heard. You know, you turn into the Hulk when you're on PCP and, and he bursts out of the jail and we're forced to shoot him. And, you know, I had the gun, I had the cap gun and I had the, the, the blood pack and all that stuff. So, um, that we were majorly into Friday the 13th, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, we had to 
do a journal thing for one of my schools. And most people are just journaling with their journaling. And I asked the teacher, I'm like, can I just write a story? And she's like, yeah. And so I wrote this like uh, serialized story about, you know, uh, uh, Michael Myers meets Jason meets Chainsaw Massacre meets Freddy. And I just started doing this in increments and you had to read your journal in front of the class each week. And so serialized over the course of like eight weeks, I think I did installments of like each, you know, in, in part one, you know, Freddy meets Jason and in part two, Jason meets Michael Myers and part three, they all go to the Chainsaw Massacre house. Anyway, long story short, but in, uh, high school, uh, became a huge James. Oh, Tim Burton. Oh my gosh. I discovered Tim Burton because I couldn't figure out what filmmakers did. And I wanted to know really badly because George Lucas didn't direct Empire Strikes Back, but it feels very Star Wars to me. And George Lucas didn't direct Rears of the Lost Ark, but he was involved somehow. Like that's how he started figuring out like, well, wait a second. Well then what does Spielberg do? Like, I guess I can see the through line between this Spielberg movie and that Spielberg movie. But, but I was looking for a new filmmaker so I could go, okay, I want someone that I don't know who they are just yet. And I, and I want to see their progress. Well, the one and, and I'm a huge live action superhero fan. I grew up watching Christopher Reeve and I, the, you, you, you booked out the day, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the double feature of the Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman TV show on Saturday night. You know, I, I'd be looking at the watch at like five o'clock. I'm like, all right, news. And then we got to watch Hee Haw. Then we watch that. But then, you know, and we, we got shot on Ah. But then it's time for the Hulk and then Wonder Woman or vice versa, I think. So uh, superhero movies. So when they started making a Batman movie, which I had been rumored for years. As soon as Christopher Reeve's Superman came out, my, my uh, stepdad told me, he's like, oh no, they're making a Batman movie. I'm like, <gasps> and it's just in my head. I'm like, because the Batman TV show I was also in love with, uh, with the advent of Cable, Superman, there was a live action Superman I could watch a lot of Anyway, so, so I said, and they said, Tim Burton's directing this. And I was like, the Pee Wee's Big Adventure guy? Like, how does that even happen? Okay, now I'm going to figure out what a director does. Because how does what happens with the Pee Wee's Big Adventure guy makes Batman? Well, in between that came out Beetlejuice. And I was like, I went to Beetlejuice going, all right, today's the day I find out what directors do. And I did. I was like, oh, I, I recognized like the large Marge, you know, weird claymation stuff that would go in. You see that all over Beetlejuice. And then, you know, and then so anyway, that's that's what, so I became a huge Tim Burton head. And then I'd always love James Cameron because the one two punch of Terminator and then Aliens. You're like, who is this God? You know, <clears throat> and they programmed at that time in the theaters an Aliens the fly double feature and you get one ticket to go to both. And so, you know, you're watching the fly and this is already blowing my head because I'm already into horror and stuff like that. But I'm also like really into, into Terminator. Like I would never stop watching Terminator over and over and over. That movie was just rock and roll for movie fans and different than Spielberg and Lucas. It had progressed film had progressed in, in my estimation. But boy, that second feature, you know, you're all excited from the fly. You're like, wow, that was crazy and gross and all the good stuff, you know, at that time. Boy, then you're just unprepared for Aliens, which I had not seen Alien yet because Alien, kids couldn't see. But Aliens, I was now old enough, but we hadn't, we didn't have a VCR yet. Um, or maybe we were getting a VCR that year. I think we had just gotten a VCR, but we hadn't, I hadn't seen Alien yet. Um, and I knew I couldn't see Alien. I knew I couldn't see Jaws for a long time. And those were two. I was just like, I got it. When I get old enough, those are the movies I'm going to see. And you just imagine what Jaws is, you know. Finally, they showed it on TV. And that was one where I enforced on staying up late tonight. <laughs> you don't tell me to go to bed tonight. Jaws is on tonight. And, and my favorite thing, every time I watch the end of Jaws, because uh, uh, 
you know, I want, I, they, they wanted to, uh, they were picking me up at my dad's house. They wanted to go home, but I was like, no, 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 no. I'm watching Jaws. I'm watching Jaws. And finally that shark explodes at the end and, and, and everybody wants to go to bed and leave. And they're, they're humoring me going, this kid really loves Jaws. He's really got to see Jaws. And when that shark explodes at the end, every time I see that shark explode, I can hear my dad go, well, that's what you were waiting for. <laughs> and then everybody up out of the house. <laughs> But, but on, on my path to college, I had this dream of being a filmmaker. I had this dream of, of you know, writing movies or acting in movies, anything in the, in the form. But as I approached college, and college was an actual reality, and it wasn't to film school. There was a, there was a video school there, um, but there was also an acting program. And I am trying to figure out what to do. And I'm lowballing it. They did like a career preference type thing in high school. And it said I should work in radio. And I was like, okay, that's much more realistic. You know, guys like me growing, you know, graduating from this high school, we don't go make movies. People don't do that. There was no indie film that I knew of at that time. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to go into radio. I'm going to lowball it. I can be a radio producer. And, you know, let's forget these big lofty dreams that are impossible and blah, blah, blah. And then that summer between senior year and college, I went to go see Terminator 2, the sequel to one of my favorite movies of all time after Aliens, after The Abyss. And I'm like, it's just like the filmmaking craft in that thing. I mean, not to mention all the really mind blowing stuff, but just like the solid story and how it just how that movie is just so relentless. He does all the things we love from the other movies, plus more and advancing the form. And I, it's one of the few times I can remember leaving a movie and just my jaws just dropped. I'm just speechless. I'm just, my friends are all in the car joking. Oh, wasn't that a fun time stuff? I'm like, I, I think I'm a changed man. I'm absolutely going to go be a filmmaker. I'm going to college for film. So I turned a video degree into a film degree by taking, uh, 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 I minored in film studies. So I was like, part of it is you've got to study every movie. And so I, I took every film class studying German film, Russian film, uh, uh, every single type of film. And then I took photography because I realized I wasn't getting a photography education in video. So I made my own, made my own film program. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Damn dude. And then tried to make a bunch of little Terminator movies in the course of, uh, uh the course of that. <laughs> See, the funny one thing struck me as kind of funny is how old were you when you when you saw Jaws? You were in your late teens. No, 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 no. This would be because uh, so that comes out in '75. That is going to end up on TV. I'm going to say something more like '79. No, I think I'm like eight or nine, maybe ten. But my parents, my parents let me see some movies like that early on that other kids got to see. You know, I got to see The Jerk in theaters. When I was uh, when I was a kid, and that was although you kind of wonder what was that R rated for? They say shithead. Like, all right, I can handle shithead. Like my mom just called you know called dinner a shithead when it got burnt. You know, I'm like I hear that word. You know. <laughs> yeah, my folks, uh, my folks let me watch uh, Jaws when I was five. And oh wow! Scared the shit out. Like I loved it, but that's why I don't get, go into the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, it scared the hell out of me, dude, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. No, no amount of, uh, you know, I live here in California. I've been in the ocean four times. And, and it, no amount of in your head saying, well, statistically speaking, uh, you have a greater chance of being bitten by a pig than a shark. It do doesn't matter. You go out in that water and you're like, anything could be out here right now. Anything. Yeah. And then, uh, so then you just, 
you just make sure there's like three levels of people. You're like, if the shark comes in, it's going to get that guy, then it's going to get that guy, then it's going to get that guy, and I'll be in here. That's okay. I can handle the water just up to my tummy. I don't have to go out there and swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so funny you talk about like that as far as like the layers and stuff. Because I grew up, uh, I was born in Ohio, and then uh, about 18 months old, we moved to Texas. Oh, wow. So uh, for until I was about five or six. And so we went to Galveston a lot in the beach down there on the Gulf. And oh, okay, right. I just, I remember doing that same thing, like six, seven years old. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to let them go a little bit further out there. And uh, I'll just kind of hang out up here. But yeah, yeah. that scarred me. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be the least slow, right? Yeah. <laughs> Give me a head start back to the beach when uh, things start turning red out there. The Alex Kittner's out there. In the, uh... um, now, do you recall the first movie that you saw in a movie theater? You know, I mean, Star Wars just overshadows so many things because I got to see that in the theater six times. Might be including a re-release. I think I saw it four times, and then it was re-released twice before uh, uh, Empire. So I think I saw that six times in the theater before Empire. I mean, then it was re-released after Empire too. So I think ultimately in the theaters, I did see it eight times over the course of its its runs. Um, so that overshadows everything else. I mean, I've been told stories from my aunt that it was like Pinocchio or something, but I'm like, that just doesn't stick, man. Because I saw Star Wars six between six and eight times in the theater. And then you leave, unlike every other movie, you leave that theater and you continue the adventure with action figures. That The advent of that just overshadows everything. So I can remember no other movies before Star Wars, even though I'm sure I saw something. But expanding past Star Wars uh, became a thrill. You know, you go see, you go start seeing other, well, I mean, Superman the movie. And, you know, I mean, the, the influence of Star Wars on other movies, you started getting nothing but Star Wars. You started getting Krull and, you know, and all this stuff in Star Trek two and, you know, all this stuff that's just like, you know, the mind blowing for kids. And you're like, God, I can see other types of Star Wars every week almost now, ET and all that stuff. So yeah, so, but that all stems from Star Wars. Definitely Star Wars. I mean, I do have memories of being in a theater and watching Star Wars for the second time. I don't think I remember the, the no, actually I do remember the first one, but I start developing more and more memories of reliving those moments that I was excited for. Oh, here comes the part with this. Oh, here comes the part with this, you know, um, and that, that, uh, yeah, that was good stuff. That was good stuff, man. That's, that's formative. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I saw Star Wars, uh, Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. the, I was old enough uh, that oh. when it came out, I was uh, born and, went to see that and I remember that like it was yesterday. I mean I mean I I remember everything. The incline back I don't know if it was this way up here, but down in Texas the the theaters uh there was one aisle that went right down the middle of the theater and it was mm -hmm. on kind of a steep incline. So I remember I was used to run down it because I could get momentum and have <laughs> front and my brothers didn't they didn't want to sit with me and mom you know i remember everything about that dude oh man i mean and as as we progress past the very first time i saw star wars the memories i can go back mentally and sit in that theater right now the what the dayton mall salem mall the salem mall cinema was a constant because you could go in one entrance to the salem mall the movie theater is right there uh, just a little bit down the way was an arcade. And so you could get there early and dad, you know, would give me five bucks and quarters in the arcade. And you're just like, this is a 
paradise of a day, go to the comic book store afterwards. And, you know, I mean, that's just, that was a, a Sunday with dad. Um, but the, the Salem mall, I mean, I can, I can picture myself sitting there watching star Wars right now. And I know absolutely if you put me in that, uh, same theater right now, cause that's where I saw it. That was the first one I saw. First movie I ever saw on opening day was return of the Jedi. And you know, there were, there, I had seen no trailers. I had seen some footage of that at the end of Entertainment Tonight. And I've heard Ken Knapsack talk about this too. That that footage, every shot of that, I could, I could piece together that trailer at the end of Empire Strikes Back from seeing it once when I watched Return of the Jedi. I'm like, that shot, that shot, that shot, that shot. Because that's it. I knew there was another Star Wars movie coming out which was an exciting development. I didn't know they were going to make another one of these to begin with. And when Empire Strikes Back came out, that was like shocking. I was like, they made another one of these? Like, uh, 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 oh my God, you know. And and I can I can picture standing in line for Empire on the opening, maybe not the opening weekend. I think we waited at that time. But Return of the Jedi, my parents went and got tickets for opening day and were standing there in a packed lobby with that footage running through my head of the tree exploding on Endor of the, the, the gate opening and Luke grabbing the, you know, in the Rancor pit and shaking it. I'm just like, where is he? What is that? Why is that tree exploding? Like, Oh my God. And you know, a shot of all the ships and you know, for the battle of Endor and, you know, just sitting there waiting for that movie to start. It's the most incredible anticipation and, you know, and it just builds up and builds up and builds up. It's all day. I mean, it was, you know, all week and all day that day. I mean, you, t you talk about my anticipation of like, is news over because wonder woman's on at seven, a whole week of just like waiting for return of the Jedi, the culmination of this thing that I just love so much and just made me who I am. I could go into that theater and pick the exact seat I was sitting in when that whole thing unfolded on screen. And I mean, you know, there's Darth Vader, there's Jabba the Hutt, there's Han Solo. I mean, it just, you know, all the way up to like Luke flipping on that uh, thing on the skiff. It's just like, it's the thrill of a lifetime. It's just like, it's it sticking into my veins, that, that Star Wars thrill. And I've carried that thrill forever. You know, people are like, eh, Phantom Menace isn't very good. I'm like, no, 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 I'm that same kid from Jedi. Every time I see one of these, like, you just can't, you can't, that feeling is in that movie. Trust me. <laughs> Um, did you ever go to the neon movie theaters? I did. I did. Uh, yeah, I d actually, I had a, a great time at my roommate from Greenville, Ohio. Uh, when my senior year of college, is this my senior? Yeah, senior year of college. Uh, got We got these punch cards uh, for the neon movies. And every Saturday morning, they would show a Hitchcock movie. And so we ended up seeing through the course of that year in college, that was just our Sunday thing. A bunch of us pile into the car and go watch a Hitchcock movie. And there were so many Hitchcock movies I haven't seen, I hadn't seen. And, you know, I'm in film school. Well, I'm in my own version of film school at the time. And, you know, they come up and some, some classes will show a Hitchcock for this reason or that reason. But, uh, but I still had been, you know, I mean, the guy made 60 movies or something or 40 some movies. So it was so great. Every Saturday you would study a new Hitchcock movie and then you would go and read up on that movie and how it was made and all that stuff. And that just happened every weekend at the neon movies. But still, when I go back and visit my, uh, my stepmom and sister, uh, we go and, and do a day at the neon movies as well. I assume it's still open, right? I believe it is. My brother and my nephew went a couple of years ago, at least. So, yeah. And also, you know, the, the, the other great thing that happened is in mid college, 
here comes the independent film scene. It's almost like life waited for me to get to an age where I could appreciate music and truly appreciate film to introduce the grunge, you know, the, the alternative music movement. And if you know anything about Oxford, Ohio, you know, 97 X, the future of rock and roll was one of the few large wattage college rock stations in the, in the country. I think there were like five of them. And uh, the tower for 97X was next to the house I went to high school in. So y you got it through everything. But, um, uh, and, then, and then here comes independent film. I mean, I have just clocked in as a college student who is absolutely going to make movies, absolutely study movies. And here comes independent film. For your for your consideration, so the neon movies was also when we wouldn't go see a Hitchcock movie. Sometimes we would, uh, you know, stay and watch another movie there because there were all these great independent films coming out at that time. And you know, where you're going to see uh, the piano, or where you're going to see, you know, some of these uh, movies. And you know, the, the rumor mill, those movies weren't playing in Oxford, Ohio, but the college students were talking about those. Like, where are you going to see El Mariachi? It's not going to be at the Princess Theaters. You got to go down to the neon. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing um, the one the one that I remember seeing. There's Lost Highway, right? Uh, that's another one where it's like, dude, where are we gonna watch them? And my brother's like, yo, it's it, it's at Neon. Let's yeah, you gotta go to the Neon. Yeah, I'd like a Neon uh, movies T-shirt. The next time I'm there, I'm gonna get a Neon. That'd be a great thing to wear, like if it was a Schmodown or whatever. Like you know, the fact that I wore a Dayton Dragons hat, which I just wore because it had a D, which I thought for Dan Merle, and I wanted to dress with a hat like Dan Merle to try and dress like my uh, competitors. I know instantly i've been to a few dragons games over the years and i as soon as i saw it i was like yes it's, there we go <laughs> I know. um no uh before I move off from uh from neon movie i'm just curious yeah at that time were they doing rocky horror picture show on friday nights they were they were and i never went and did the rocky horror thing but boy did that boy i it's so lucky that my sister was able to go do that all through her high school. That was like such a big deal. And that just totally formed her personality. And, you know, like letting being knowing that you can be a freak, you could be, a, a you know, look at all these people dressed up like this thing to, to celebrate this weird movie that almost nobody knows about. You know, that that was really cool. She she did Rocky Horror a lot there. And uh, and, and very proudly as a Rocky Horror fan, uh, I was able to take her to the room here in L.A. when she visited when I first moved here before anybody had heard of it, which was cool. Yeah, a lot of memories there uh, with friends uh, hanging out in the Oregon District at coffee shops. Oh, right. Or would start and. Just yeah, the, just the memories, man. Uh, it was such a good time. Yeah, that is that is a really a wonderful slice of Ohio is the Oregon district there because yeah, you could go and there was a coffee shop or tchotchke shops or head shops that you could just wander the little brick street there and then you know if you had an hour before your movie and then just walk to the neon, you know, it's right around the corner pretty much. Yeah, and and speaking of some of of places around Dayton, I have to ask because you're from there. Um, so I got some. I've got some places that I've been to and I'm familiar with, and some questions. So, okay, Marion's Pizza. Yes, so good, isn't it? Oh my gosh! Uh, yes, Marion's was the best. Now Marion's was that classic place that after a little league game, I never played sports, but I would go to my cousin's little league games or soccer games, and that was the classic after soccer place to go. Man, that Marion's Pizza is still the greatest. It's, it's, in it, I mean, they haven't changed the recipe in years. I had it a couple years ago. Um, and, uh, man, yeah. Marion's pizza in Inglewood was the one I remember. That's uh, 
right down the street because you know sometimes you would go to a movie as well. That's where I saw Superman two, uh, Arthur, Ordinary People, that little theater there. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, and Marion's Pizza was in that little plaza there. Oh my gosh! And that, that's also that McDonald's in that plaza. Yeah. One one time uh, after a movie, my my dad was bringing me back, and uh, uh, Chuck Norris was doing a thing at the Hera Arena. A, like a, a presentation, a demonstration with other martial arts students and stuff like that. And my dad looked a lot like Chuck Norris at the time. And there were like three teenage girls that were like, kept looking and kept looking. We're just sitting there eating our McDonald's, kept looking. And finally one comes over and goes, are you Chuck Norris? And I guess they weren't WKRP fans because he looked a lot more like Howard Hessman. But, <laughs> but uh, and you couldn't convince these girls my dad wasn't Chuck Norris. That's a funny story from that Englewood uh, McDonald's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know exactly where you are. I uh, yeah, Diamond Mill at least once a week on my way to Miamisburg. So where's that? Diamond Mill. There. Diamond Mill. Yes, I take that all the way down uh, south of Dayton. So I have spent many years of my life on Diamond Mill Road, and I I, uh, I have a relative that li that's has always since my birth lived on Diamond Mill Road. <clears throat> I know Diamond Mill quite well. <laughs> Too many stop signs and the speed limit's not fast enough. And it's they true. hide all the speed limit signs with uh, with trees and plants. It's terrible. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. I wanted to make a video on that since I was in high school. Uh, driving down that road and showing how... Anyway, that's I'm not going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, your audience, uh, I think we're boring them with the amount of stop signs on Diamond Mill Road. Although it is great that we both have uh, a lot of similar reference points. <laughs> But you did bring up Hera Arena. That was the next place on my list. Uh, is I saw a bunch of uh, concerts there. A lot of concerts. Uh, had uh, season tickets to the Dayton Bombers hockey team with my dad. Oh, um, bombers. Do you have any memories from any events at Hera Arena? Do you ever do anything? There? Yes, WWF. Uh, I saw the WWF uh, in, uh, and boy, what a miracle that as Star Wars ended, like suddenly there was WWF, G.I. Joe, Transformers. It's a, what a time, just what a time for me and my friends who are into all this stuff. But yeah, my parents got tickets to WWF and we went and watched the WWF at Hera Arena. Uh, that's my big memory there. I think we were there for other things too, but I, they're not coming to mind right now. Uh, my big first concert was at uh, University of Dayton. That was Def Leppard. In their hysteria tour, yeah, that was a big moment. But WWF, uh, Ricky Steamboat, uh, who else? Uh, uh, Corporal Kirshner, uh, George the Animal Steel, Mr. Fuji, uh, and it's so funny. I had this little instant, instant camera—not an instant camera, but whatever—the little block camera with a cube that you put on top of it. So we have all these photos of like as they would pass and stuff of like Corporal Kirshner and. And uh, I loved Corporal Kirshner. He was like the Rambo uh, wrestler of the time. Um, yeah, Ricky Steamboat. And uh, and you try and take pictures of the action by sticking your camera out in the aisle and trying to get a shot. You're like 80 feet away from the from the. But we were on the floor. You know, it was cool. It was a it wasn't a broadcast uh, one, but yeah. WWF and Hair Arena. That's right in there with slasher movies and Fangoria. I mean, the magazines were Ninja Magazine, WWF Magazine, and Fangoria. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's that just makes my heart uh, grow three sizes mentioning those three particular periodicals. <laughs> uh, and there's one more uh, location and thing specifically about this location I want to ask you about. Um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base is uh, mm -hmm. Dayton, Fairfield, whatever. Uh -huh. It, but um, I want to ask your opinion 
Uh, what do you think about the rumors that, that they, at least at some point in time, housed the, the wreckage and all of that from uh, from Roswell in, in one of the hangars there at Wright Pat? Did you ever hear that as you were growing up? I heard that more via, I believe there's a conflagration of two rumors. Uh, one is that the story uh, from the movie Super 8 has a connection to Oxford, Ohio, that they're a train wrecked, uh, a train derailed at one point, and that was coming from Area 51, or what was coming from Nevada. I mean, who knows? Who knows what telephone game turns this into? But supposedly that derailed outside of Oxford, Ohio, um, and uh, supposedly that had some, you know, government secrets or whatever because of its origination in Nevada. Uh, I think that's how they get to the rumor that some of that was stored at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Um, but no, that was nothing we ever talked about. I, I put that together much later around like uh, when Super 8 came out that uh, that I heard that had the uh, origin. It, well, I think that's what it was. It was headed for Wright Patterson Air Force Base from Nevada, right? Uh, I'm not sure. I never heard anything about how it had gotten there, but yeah. When, when I was a kid and a teenager, I just remember there for maybe about six months, it was just a big deal around Dayton and around our area because someone was trying on the local news, trying to get records released to prove it. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I just always, I was wondering uh, if you guys heard the same kind of rumors as you were a kid. Too. No, no, not, not as a kid. Uh, I mean, my only experience with Wright Patterson is that was a classic uh, uh, school trip place to go was uh, Wright Pat or Kosai, the Columbus. It's so great. Something. Yep. Um, but uh, now, am I correct here that you now did you move from Oxford to Cincinnati? No, I've just always claimed uh, uh, that I'm. If it depends upon who I'm talking to, I'm talking to someone from Dayton. I'm from Dayton. If I talk to someone from Cincinnati, I can say I'm from Cincinnati because. That was closer. We started getting Cincinnati TV when we lived in Oxford. You know, we were closer to Cincinnati than Dayton. We could never get any Cincinnati stations when we lived in Lewisburg. Right. Um, so we started watching the nightly news with Cincinnati, Jerry Springer, and uh, and George, Nick Clooney, George Clooney's dad. Um, and um, so we started being and, – and we started getting, you know, like 700 WLW, which I guess you could get in Dayton. I guess we listened to that in Dayton too, but it yeah. became more of a fixture. I started paying more attention to baseball in general, but the Reds. Uh, so yeah, we we definitely are adopted of Cincinnati, and we would go there for more things than Dayton at that point. So uh, I didn't live in Cincinnati. I moved from Oxford to Chicago. Yeah, but you're familiar with. I know exactly what you mean. I listen to 700 every day of my life, and I have since I was a teenager. Yeah, how is it now? Is is Mike McConnell still on? I always liked Mike McConnell. Yes, uh, he had he had moved to Chicago for about three or four years, but came back. He had retired, right? What's that? He retired. Did, he didn't go on radio in Chicago. I didn't know that. He went to yeah, Chicago. He went to do radio in Chicago, and then came back. Um, who was uh Who was it that did the early early morning? And did Jim uh, Scott? Mm, was it Jim Scott? Well, years ago. I mean, decades ago. Uh, uh, it, it was Jim Scott for a long time. Right. early morning slot now uh like well if you get early enough it's truck and bozo but <laughs> yeah he's truck and but well it's not i can't remember who's on the truck and bozo uh because he he retired and i was like oh man i don't want to listen anymore but right. willie cunningham's still rocking it on there um wow yeah yeah in, in fact i heard the other day and i thought about you because i was wondering if you had heard this but 
the other uh, the other day they play a clip for a, a roofing company that 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 Willie promotes, and they play a and I guess it's a legit nine one one call that Willie had to make. He had gotten stuck on his roof. Uh, the ladder fell. Oh my and, god! You know, it's like hello nine one one, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm stuck on my roof. I can't get down. And they ask his name. He says uh, Bill Cunningham, and the lady goes, "Is this Willie?" And he's like. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. great well yeah i mean that was my uh love of talk radio uh you know when we moved closer to cincinnati 700 became more of a fixture i mean that lineup you couldn't beat it i would just turn it on at the jim scott was well he was the master of dropping I mean, he must have advertised 800 products in an hour and you wouldn't even know it. Like he would just, he would go, and the weather is this. And when your weather's getting rough, you know, you're like, how does he do this? How does he do this? Like a master of advertising stuff. Um, and then, uh, and then you would Mike McConnell midday, and then you would get, uh, uh, Gary Burbank, yes. which was, which was, I mean, where, where did the out and out nothing but sketches comedy show go in radio? Oh my God. I mean, it was like a morning show in the afternoons. Yeah, and Gilbert then Gnarly was one of his characters. Gilbert and, Gnarly, G N A R L E Y, he spells his name every time. So, and and he would make prank calls, super innocent prank calls. You yeah. know, like Gilbert Gnarly would call and say uh, that he had just gotten, uh, he just gotten something. Oh, oh, a solar powered calculator. I remember this because for one Christmas they, they sold all the cassettes of uh, Gilbert Gnarly and uh, Earl Pitts, yeah. uh, which it, was his hillbilly character. Yeah. Uh, uh, redneck character. I mean, it's so funny. Like that was a parody and he knew it was a parody. And like, I feel like you could hear that guy now being a serious conservative or something. You're like, am I listening to Earl Pitts? Cause this used to be a joke. And I don't know if this guy knows he's being a parody of a character, but, um, but yeah, definitely the proud Ohio and, you know, uh, calling everybody sissies and that sort of stuff. And then it was, uh, Oh, I got a great story for you. I got a great story for you because, uh, the the sports talk, if the Reds weren't on, it was Bob Trumpy when I was a kid. And w great sports talk. That guy was one of the best sports talk people. I think he left to actually go do national sports. Uh, and, and then after him was Bill Cunningham. You could listen to that all day long. Yeah, and, and you could, you're like, well, I'm loving Mike McConnell. I can't wait for this. Yeah, that was really kind of magical. And I feel like my love, and I had a radio show in Chicago. I've had various, uh, you know, tons of podcasts here. My love of radio and that sort of entertaining type of talk radio, like, comes from there. Like, I would almost feel like I, I, I'm born to, like, run a radio station or something because talking about it with you right now. But let me get, let me get to a, a funny story about Bob Trumpy. Uh, Bob Trumpy was very hard on Cincinnati legend and hero to us all, Eric Davis. Uh, Eric Davis was MVP in the 1990 World Series, but before that, he would take crap from all of these white talk show hosts who, you know, even at that time, you're like, I think this guy's being a little racist about Eric Davis. Um, and he just took crap from people all the time, and yet he was the Jose Canseco of Cincinnati. It's like, everybody shut the up you know uh and but you know us kids who we had the baseball cards and everything and you know an eric davis rookie card and then you would you would root for all the baseball cards to do good that season you know you're like oh i want this baseball card to do good um so eric davis was just our hero loved eric davis and uh and had a poster of multiple posters of him eric the red so uh but bob trumpy was always very difficult on him and that always upset me and, and i stopped listening to him because he wouldn't stop being you know the guy got an injury like this is the 
sports talk conversation to this day of like, oh, would you hurt your pinky nail? It's like, no, they're playing an elite sport, you idiot. You're sitting behind a microphone. Like, let me guess, you're not too sore to do the show today, fat white guy behind the microphone. So cut to, I go to Chicago. I, I take my love of improv from Miami University. I go join the Second City. I'm never never a, a major part of that, but I meet a lot of my comedy friends. We uh, come out to LA for some meetings every once in a while. And a couple of, of my, my sketch comedy troupe were really good at social media before social media of getting people out to a party and sort of thing. So we've got a lot of friends that had moved from Chicago to uh, to Los Angeles. And it's, uh, so this weekend we go to a couple meetings, we come into town, we do a show at the old Second City space, which is uh, at the Improv. And uh, then we get our friends together and we're at Monday Night Football is Chicago Bears. All of our Chicago comedian friends who have moved out here and are now you know, doing stuff for Mad TV and things like that, we get a whole party together. And I don't know who booked it, who found it, but Justin Kaufman, uh, uh, the the great Justin Kaufman of the comedy troupe Schadenfreude, my comedy troupe, um, organized this cool club uh, that had an upstairs with this like long hallway, all glass, looking down onto a dance floor and the rest of the bar, and a big TV up. And with all these little rows of chairs, you know, for our you know, 12, 15 people uh, that from Chicago who had moved here. So we're watching the Bears and everything like that. Meanwhile, the bottom of the bar has been booked by Hennessy for with a DJ and cool. Everybody's dressed up down there. All these people just amazing. You know, Hennessy, you know, African-American crowd down there. But playing the best music every time you go to the go every time you go to the bathroom or something you'd have to like work your way onto the dance floor just a little bit because it's like great dj great great hennessy party going on down there i believe it was hennessy and uh, um we're standing there we're watching the chicago bears and my my and justin eagle eye i can't recognize a celebrity to save my life uh i mean i i realized uh, w- one time a friend of mine gave me a uh, like a coupon for a, a little, a special gym over in West Hollywood. And I was like, oh, let me go to a fancy gym. I had a terrible, gross gym. And I went in there and I was in the locker room with Sam Rockwell for 10 minutes and only realized when he got up to leave, I was like, that was Sam Rockwell. Anyway, so I can't recognize this uh, a celebrity to save my life. Um, and Justin looks down at the dance floor and he goes, that's Eric Davis. And I was like, what? And I was like, that full powder blue, full oh, jumpsuit, expensive looking jumpsuit, powder blue, dancing his butt off on the floor. And I'm like, he goes, that's Eric Davis. And I was like, get the hell out of here. And, and he goes, he goes, come on, we got it. We got to go meet Eric Davis. He, and he knew my history with Eric Davis. So we run down. I wish I could give you this photo. I got the photo somewhere. We run down. And as I get closer, it is Eric Davis. <laughs> Justin was right. And and uh, Justin immediately goes, hey, hey, we, my friend here is from Cincinnati. He's a Reds, lifelong Reds fan or whatever. And Eric's like, oh, my God. And I go, and, and I'm just like, I'm meeting my Babe Ruth. I'm meeting my Pete Rose. Well, I guess Pete Rose is my Pete Rose. But I'm like, it's my favorite baseball player by a mile, by so far. Uh, and I just like that. Oh my God, you're Eric Davis. Oh my God, you're the best. And I just started rattling off all of the, the stuff. And he started laughing so much. And I yell, and one of the first things I said to him, and I go, fuck Bob Trumpy. <laughs> and he laughed so 
hard. And I go, they never give you any respect in Cincinnati. You were the best baseball player. And I started going, he is howling, laughing that someone came out of the nowhere at this party and started just praising him or whatever. And so we got a picture with him and everything. And uh, yeah, that was such a, uh, that was a funny moment. So Bob Trumpy, I think is where that story came from. Yes. Eric Davis, my very favorite. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Now, were at this point in time, were you living in California? Uh, no, no, still in Chicago, and uh, you know we were trying to our sketch comedy troupe uh, had been running for many years, and and you know uh, friends of ours were making it out here in L.A., and so we were able to scare up some meetings and stuff like that, and we would go to improv festivals, and we were the mainstay sketch group at a few improv festivals, and so we started trying to scare up meetings. We come out and do a. Sometimes we were invited to come out and do a, a showcase show, but then we were we were go-getters so we would set up our own showcase shows and, and tell all of our you know friends like please tell your agent or whatever so it was that sort of thing come out here and do our our raucous show and uh, uh a, a very raucous show we ripped out hard, you know you go back to my just say no play that i that i said where i made a blood pack so that when the guy got shot it would explode with blood which nobody had gone that far um we at the end, we ended every sketch show, and Schadenfreude must have done 300 shows. We ended every one by pulling a fake heart out of someone's chest and eating it, and blood would come down his his uh, his mouth. And I built fake hearts for years and years and years. So it all comes back. You know, like, like all that Tom Savini stuff, like, you know, I am not working in horror. I did not, you know, make a horror movie or anything like that. But all that stuff comes back. And they were like, who here knows how to make a fake heart? I was like, <laughs> Got you covered. So yeah. Uh, what was it that made you decide to make the move to uh, to California? That was uh, interesting. I uh, I actually kind of regret my timing because uh, there were some good opportunities still going on in Chicago that I really could have taken advantage of. And so I spent my first two years here just hearing of great stuff that I could be involved with in Chicago. But I felt. I had lost a job. I had quit a job. Uh, and I, every once in a while, I'll get, when I'm really dissatisfied without having any backup or any money in the bank, I'll still quit my job just on principle and something else will pick me back up and, and loft me up. So I had quit a job. I was, I was raising financing for uh, independent films in, in Chicago. And uh, I thought that was going to be my route into the film industry, but it was still more of a sales job. I mean, they went and made movies. I got to go to the set and everything like that. Got to, got to give Sam Witwer his acting start. That was one of my productions. Wow. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Gave uh, Sam Witwer uh, uh, his, his start in showbiz. I, I'd like to run into him sometime to share some stories from shooting those movies down in Alabama. But, uh, you know, after we had, I had spent two years raising money, uh, through investors on an independent film and we were finally making the movie. I finally went to go see that. So there was a sense of completion there that I was like, okay, that's done. And, and, you know, and it was going through editing and I thought I could maybe have a little more say in it, but it was just at the end of the day, I was a salesman and, and that's, I, I, I knew that, but as a kind of a go-getter, like, oh, this is my, this is my chance to get in, to make a movie. You know, and I thought if this movie we made makes some money, then maybe they would, Go to other people that work there who had been loyal and say, "Oh, right, well, who else here wants to make a movie? Um, but uh, so then just one day I was just like, you know what? I'm a salesman. I'm not doing anything artistic. My friends had started doing shows at the Second City. Uh, it just seemed like 
oh, oh, my radio show had ended. So there was just like a bunch of things had come to an end. And I quit that job with no other prospects. And so a week later, I find myself in a temp office filling out a form to try and temp again because I'm like, I don't know what else I can do. But the entire time I've been in Chicago, the entire time post-college, I am a video editor and shooter. But I'm not doing anything on a professional level. But every all I shot tons and tons and tons of shorts uh, in, the, in the comedy scene in Chicago. And I taught myself digital editing because I graduated college without the invention of something like digital editing. Digital editing was brand new. And I had to learn that as soon as I left college, I worked on I worked on 35 millimeter film once, and then I worked on videotape a few times, and then it was like, it's going digital, you gotta learn it. So I had built up enough experience, because I was still a trained editor, it just learning a new medium, but I built up enough experience that I was like, if I got into a larger pool, basically, like if, if someone's looking for the least experienced editor in Chicago, I mean, I mean, the only editing jobs in Chicago were for the most experienced editor who knew Avid and who, you know, had giant experience. But if I moved to California, where a bunch of my friends had moved, I had friends here. Um, if I moved here, I could catch the drippings off of the better gigs. I could catch the least, you know, like I have, I certainly have enough experience to do the slacker job on this or the slacker job on that. And so I came here and, uh, you know, with, I mean, just so little money in my pocket. It just, it was, it was a terrible idea, frankly. But, uh, but you know, that's, I'm, as uh, George Lucas would say, a Francis Ford Coppola jumps, jump off a cliff and somehow land in a pirouette on the cliff below. And it's like, ah, I don't, I don't know how I do it, but I did come here and like two weeks later through a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, I got a job that lasted me a year, and that was enough to to start trying to get other gigs. Um, I don't do any professional stuff right now, but what's fun is I still have the experience. You know, when I do a, a short film with you know Paul Preston and I, myself, I'm like, you know, I see a lot of people that don't have access to editing or experience in editing, and uh, so uh, you know, it's 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 an advantage, and and I, I do make money at it now. It, it is how I make my money. So, um, so I was right. Yeah. <laughs> Like you said, the timing may not have been been the best, but no, it turned out good. So yeah, yeah, I probably could have did the same thing in Chicago and started finding work as an editor there and maintain my connection to comedy, which would have been nice because even though I'd heard about it, it's like the drop off in being able to do a comedy show. It's just suddenly in a new world here. Uh, you know, in Chicago, it's like oh, here's a Here's the back of a bar. Hey, bartender, can I do a show here Friday night? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, and that's that's all it was. Here, it's like, oh, no, that's booked for uh, this or that's booked for that or do you have insurance and all that sort of stuff. So you're like, suddenly I went from doing lots of comedy shows to zero comedy shows and only editing. So, you know, but uh, but I found my way back into comedy and stuff like that. So That's good. Yeah. Um, and speaking of comedy, we will use that as a segue because I, I want to know, how did you meet Mark and Christian? Segway. Uh, uh, I met Mark, Mark and Christian because uh, Paul Preston uh, and his uh, wife at the time, uh, Karen Volpe, uh, had a tremendous, uh, they had a, uh, uh, they were so committed to being artists and living the artist lifestyle, no matter how 
poor it made them that they just didn't want to do anything else. And, you know, and, and, and Karen's no longer with us, but she did have the attitude of, hey, I might not be here tomorrow. I'm, we're going to spend all of our money on this show. We're going to spend, and then we're going to take some time. We're going to make some more money and we're going to spend all our money on this show. Uh, and, and, and we're just going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and always be producing was her motto. Um, so one of these opportunities, Paul goes on a game show and wins and wins a, a, a good amount of money, the game show amount of money, you know, even after taxes. And he said, uh, okay, but before that, Paul had had a birthday, one of those, you know, turned 40, I think, and was just like, I don't have a website. I'm not showing myself off as a, you know, he was doing a, a, a email where he would do reviews of movies and you would subscribe to his emails and, and stuff like that. And he still does the big Oscar rant every year was, was his big one that you would always receive even when I was in Chicago. And I had met them in Chicago. They were in another friend's uh, comedy show and, and I met them there. And Paul and I realized we both liked movies more than the average human being. And so we started going to see a lot of movies, but, um, uh, they, oh, so he won this game show and they went on a trip, I believe, or maybe that was a, he might've won two game shows, but one of the game shows he won, he said, I want to get this podcasting thing off the ground. We were doing YouTube videos in his garage <clears throat> and he's like, I want to get this podcasting thing off the ground. And there was a thing called Toad Hop Network and people were, you know, podcasting, his every other year podcasting is declared the wave of the future, the new economic model. And the year after that, it is declared over with it's too saturated. But <laughs> this is one of those times where it was the new economic model. The next year it would be considered saturated, but it was the new economic model. And this company called toad hop was bringing people in and they had a great little setup, much like zoom here. Each person got their camera on top of their monitor and they would you know, wave of the future. This is now, what is that 2012 maybe i think i think it was like 2012 or 13 it, the shows would look like what we have right here and, and uh well except there would be uh they had a switcher who would switch the camera so it had a real look professional look good microphones you know there weren't now people can buy these you know thousand dollar microphones for 300 bucks uh you know wgn microphones you can buy that you know and, and do your podcast with but they had the great equipment and everything so we said let's take our little garage show and let's bring it here and into the toad hop studios which was in the WeWork building on the corner of la brea and hollywood and uh and we were overachievers we did uh lots and lots of sketches lots and lots of written content and mark and christian and ken and their guests would be outside the glass watching us finish up our shows and so they'd always catch a little bit of our show sometimes they'd arrive early and they're planning out their shows in the the hallway but sometimes they would also catch us in full costume and doing a full you know we always liked the idea of the finale like the, uh, the schadenfreude always called it the summit push you know your last three sketches have to be this sort of like progression and I brought that mentality to to the movie guys, uh, which is what the show was called and is still called uh, in, in some degree. Uh, that was the show cast is what we called that one. But uh, so they would they would wait for us to clean up our costumes and, uh, you know, and props and they would watch the last sketch. And we'd always say hi and everything like that. And, you know, and greet them as they were coming in to do their show. And we'd hang out a little bit and watch their show and wave at them. And, and then we'd be off. And that was, uh, you know, and then we figured out that for the amount we were paying for toad hop we could buy some microphones and a mixing board and we could actually take it back to the back to the uh, uh, uh garage and do continue the show that way for one one low price of all the equipment 
and, rather than paying a monthly price. And the camera setup is different. We went to a, like a one single camera, you know, so it was a step down in that way. Then we lost touch with them for about two years. And then we went to Comic-Con, uh, or maybe it was WonderCon. I think it was Comic-Con. And, th and there's Christian and Mark, and they're setting up a table to do a live broadcast and everything. And there were people wrestling behind them. And I, I, I'm going to bet if I could go back psychically, I bet there's a lot of Schmodown people I know now who are there doing doing this sort of thing where I think they were going to do play-by-play -play for wrestling or something. But anyway, they were also going to do a live Sh Schmo's Nose show. And we saw them there and we reconnected and stuff like that. And I think we tried to make a plan to get together there, but we did not. Paul maintained a newsletter from everybody we had met. And uh, as we we ended the uh, our podcast uh, of like, I think we did like 300 shows or something of the show cast with Karen and Bart and myself and Steve Lewis uh, early on and uh, at other times as a correspondent. Um, you, you can hear on the Ford Fiesta now. But uh, uh, so we had uh, wrapped that up. We, we just decided we're putting a lot of work. We're getting 100 views. And let's just reorganize and figure that out. Um, and I think right before that, we did a push where we started a brand new show called The New Movie Show, which it turned out somebody already called their show that. But... Um, which was more of a variety tight content show. And I think Paul put a blast email out about that, or maybe a blast email to our old list about his Oscar rant and Christian gets it. And this is the first time he's heard from us in years. And he goes, Oh my God, I completely forgot about you guys. And he goes, we're doing something that totally up your alley. And so then Paul gives me a call and he goes, guess who I just talked to. I just talked to Christian Harloff. I was like, Oh God, I haven't heard that name in a while. And he goes, what they're doing, because we were all wrestling fans too back in the day, Paul and Karen and I, back in Chicago, we got into wrestling in the Attitude Era. So, and we even did a show called the Improv Wrestling Federation, which was an improv game with rules. And when you broke those rules, you could hit your opponent. It was all fake. And, you know, and you had, and you had managers for your improv team. I mean, it's like, it was like, oh my God, this is so near and dear to our heart. He laid the whole thing out. I was like, oh my God, we got to be a part of this. And so then we made an arrangement and we pitched them a couple different types of characters for us. And they liked the bro idea where we were like the bros. And um, so then we were kind of off and running and then we're like, okay, well now we let's write more sketches. Now we get to write sketches for our intros and our entrances. And I'm like, oh, we're back doing comedy again, you know? And, and uh, we did that for a couple years. And then uh, over quarantine, we started going going back to podcasting, you know, Paul and I just started a new show. So, um, yeah, that was the, the securitist route. I, I tell you that the, the, uh, lesson in that for everybody is always be producing, of course, but just do it. Just do you got an idea? You think that's interesting? You want to talk about movies? There's somebody out there that'll give you the opportunity to do that. And it's who you meet along the way. Like I did not burn up the field of improv comedy in Chicago, but I'll tell you what, I got some really good friends who are all doing really big things right now. And when the time has come and I make a movie, you know, I got people to watch that now. You know, when, it, when, it, when Paul and I get better and better at doing podcasts and better and being funny and better at doing sketches, there's someone out there to watch that that we met years ago just because we did it. Just because we were like, I have the, the guts to say that I I... I think I'm entertaining enough to do a podcast. I'm going to get out and say this and I'm going to, I think my writing's good enough. I'm going to write a sketch for this show. And then, you know, Christian and Mark who were just struggling in the same way themselves. Uh, yeah, we, and, and you know, interesting because once we got into the Schmodown, I, I didn't realize like what path these guys had taken the collider and all that. I didn't realize like where all these people came from. And, um, 
and so I start looking back on it and I realized they did that thing called popcorn talk that uh, that that network Paul and I were on the verge of doing a show there numerous times and we even had a meeting where we went there and nobody showed up or yeah we went to meetings and nobody showed up but I look back on all the old schmoes knows I'm like we didn't even know at the time that if we had started another show there we would have been right there with Christian and Mark and, and, and Ken and JT and all that, that, that classic show from there. Like we would have been doing the next show, but you know, we would have been opening for them or whatever in, in that space. So if we had been persistent, you know, one more time and said, all right, let's go get, get a popcorn talk show. Let's pitch them another idea. Um, it's like, we would have met up with them then. It's just funny how every, all these circles, you know, interweave. And that goes back to me, Quitting random jobs, not knowing what's coming next, because every time I put myself in that position, I'm like, somebody comes out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, uh, oh, I didn't know your sister's cousin's friend was here and needed an editor. You know. It's, yeah. Um. Now, what? What? Is, right now, you're playing in the schmodown. Um. If you I want mean, to call it that. Well, <laughs> you are a you are a competitor technically. I'm a fixture. All I want to be is a fixture in life, okay? You know, I don't need to be a big winner. I don't need huge success. I don't need to make a blockbuster movie. I just want to be a fixture. <laughs> you are definitely that. <laughs> You're going to be for a long time in the showdown, I think. Um, oh, God bless you. I, uh, I, I mean, obviously, this is going to come out before the end of the season. And, but, it's the, but I just want to say... I have a feeling you're going to be managing a faction next season, and I certainly hope that's true. Ooh, uh, I hope so. That'd be, that would be cool. I mean, I have no idea. There's a, there's a lot of layers between the nonsense that Paul and I do, or 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 you know, the dungeon or Kaiser and I do. You know, there's a there's a, a lot more that goes into everything, and a lot of layers that that uh, that make stuff happen or not happen. But I feel like I've kind of, I've laid the seeds, you know, I, mean, I feel like it's almost the same analogy as, um, you know, I, I quit my job, jump out of the plane, sew the parachute on the way down. It's like, you know, Kaiser leaves town and he's like, can you manage? And I'm like, yes, I can. Oh boy. Can I, can I, can I do this? Can I, yes, I can. Hmm. Should I, should I have said yes to this? You know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's my thing. But it did turn out, I mean, it turned out really fun. Like I got to do a lot of bits about how, you know, I, I want to make a run for manager of the year. I think that would be really funny. Not true, but funny. <laughs> you know, I went to a high school where the, uh, the, the, one of the big nerds uh, who was a, a, a popular nerd ran for uh prom queen and everyone's like, Oh, that's hilarious. And he got it. So I'm like, I'm doing the, I'm doing the prom queen thing. Um, you know, the, the prom king thing for uh, for the Schmodown. I'm going to run for manager of the year. And, and I think that will be a fun bit. And I'm going to try and make a lot of noise about that. But uh, yeah, I think I've I think I've set myself up to be certainly in the talks, certainly in the running. So, I mean, and, and, and even if I don't make a stink about how I didn't and how I should be, I mean, you know, it just it, it, it's going to breed no matter how next season goes, because the shakeup is going to be real interesting because the factions are going to be five people and there's going to be less of them, more of them. I don't know. But uh, yeah. So, hey, thank you. And, I, and I've also heard, I don't go on Reddit that much, but Drew said there's a whole, uh, a bunch of people talking on there about that I should get a, uh, that I should get a team next season. So that would be cool. That'd be, I, and I'm glad people are talking about it because I'm sure that makes it, you know, up to the higher offices. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. I hope so for sure. I think you'd be, be good at it from both the, the competitive, like the, the rules and, and, and the, the technical side and obviously the character side. So, yeah. yeah. I just like that all this dumb stuff I've done 
has a use in some way. I mean, I mean, you look at the Schmodown, my obsession with movies, my obsession with acting, performing, improvising, comedy, doing podcasts, doing content, you know, like that all just came around. It's like, it's like, I don't know. Did I secretly invent this for me to be a part of in some way? It's, it's, it's so perfect. And that's why, you know, sometimes when I talk uh, Paul down from the tree, uh, talk Paul down from the ledge, you know, when he's not winning and stuff like that, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the, it doesn't, this game doesn't matter. The winning this game doesn't matter, you know, and, and this is the attitude I have to take. I'm an 0-6 competitor. I'm like, this game doesn't matter. This is what, this is fun. This is, we're here to have some fun and start some crap. And you know what? Maybe win a match because we do know movies. It just we're going up against the Dan Merles of the world. I mean, you you know, you're like, uh, you know, I do pretty good in softball. Let me let me try and hit a fastball off of Nolan Ryan. Like, <laughs> you know, you're going to have some trouble, but you're still playing baseball, you know. Who happens to be my all-time favorite pitcher. Oh, uh, yeah? yeah? Not Rob Dibble? Uh, well, like I said, I grew up in Texas for the first part of my oh, life. Right, oh, right. Those games, and he was pitching in that time, so. Yeah, and then he went to the Texans, didn't he? He stayed in Texas the whole time. Yeah, wow. Amazing. But yes, this has been great, man. Thank you so yeah. much for your time here. Um, as as I always do, though, in and in honor of John Lipton, uh, as this show is inspired by Inside the Act. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I ask everyone the 10 questions that John would ask his guests at the end of each episode. <laughs> uh, so in honor of Mr. Lipton, uh, Adam Witt, what is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word. Well, let me think of one that I overuse right now. I'll happen upon a word and I'll just start overusing it. <clears throat> it's two words, but the I have adopted 100%. When someone says something, I go 100%, 100%. Uh, is that my favorite word? That's the one I overuse right now. What is my favorite word? I'll go with... Uh, this is a good question. Schadenfreude. <laughs> that's a that's the name of my sketch comedy troupe. Uh, that's my favorite word. I like it. Um, what is your least favorite word? Ugh. Ugh. I thought of what, you know, my, uh, my family used to go around because some people have words that just really bug them. Um, you know, like what my uh, cousin, it was like moist. He hated the word moist or something like that. You know, and the whole family went around like, oh, I hate this word. I hate that word. Uh, for some reason, one word that, that always bugged me was platter. <laughs> it's, there's something about the plosive in certain words that just sounds gross. Platter. Platter. Ugh. Just say plate. <laughs> platter. Platter. <laughs> platter. I mean, listen to how that, listen to how that, 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 that word is vomited up. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot argue that. Um, what turns you on? What turns me on? Yes. Oh, making, uh, making the 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 moment of uh, inception of an idea, improv. Uh, that moment where you get that idea and you go with it, and that uh, just grabbing that. I used to teach sketch writing at the second city and uh I, I taught an early sketch writing class they hadn't got into the form yet <clears throat> they hadn't got into what you know putting shows together but they had trouble getting people to start being creative so they said we're creating a, 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 a initial class that people have to take before they take level one to get them just starting to ideate to get ideas and that's snatching that if you ever listen to uh 
there's a great David Lynch book and audiobook called Catching the Big Fish. And he he talks about ideas and pulling them out of nowhere as dipping the net into the stream. But that moment of inception of the idea and the fact that that idea could come in the middle of the plot when you finally get the whole thing written. But like taking that idea, and I think it was uh, Oliver Stone in a directing book. There's an incredible directing book, which I read twice a year, <clears throat> in which all the directors give all their opinions. But uh, the you take that he said directing is taking that idea that gives you jazz that makes you want to make an entire movie, which is incredibly hard. It takes an incredible amount of steps, and it may take you four, five, six, seven years, you know. But taking that very idea and holding on to it for that long, through every day, every shot, every unloading, oh, we can't park the van. You're holding on to that idea and to try and get that into the... So that very spark, that improv, that moment, that moment when you're, you're standing there on stage with another improviser and neither of you has said anything, and that very first word you say, that's going to send the whole thing off into another direction. We don't know where we are, who we are, what's about to happen. But yeah, that moment of getting ideas, oof, that's a, that's a good one. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the jazz. That's the jam. Uh, and what turns you off? What turns me off? People who say I'm bored. Mm. I, I've never been bored in my life. I mean, maybe if I had, you know, maybe taking a test, taking the LSAT or whatever it was, the, not the SAT, but the other one, you know, the ACT, taking the ACT, I was bored. You've locked me off. I can't look at movies. I can't talk to people. I can't do this. All I have to do is look at this paper. I'm bored. Okay. But even in school, I was my head. I mean, I was a terrible student because my head was just a wash with imagery. I've never bored. I hated school. I was never bored. And when I hear someone go, Oh, I'm bored. I'm like, fuck you. I mean, get more interested. What is wrong with you? I mean, there's so much interesting out there. You're bored. Oh my God. That's such a curse word. I can't even, I can't even handle the word. I'm bored. I'm bored. Try harder. <laughs> my God. <laughs> that's on you. You realize that's on you, right? I'm bored. Yes, you are because maybe you're boring. <laughs> yeah. Curse word, curse word, bored. Ugh. Never said that. Never said that in my life. Maybe I thought it, but only while I taking the ACT. <laughs> Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Well, farts are, farts are so funny. But what one do I love? Oh, you know what's a fun one that I just discovered? Uh, here, let me do it. Yes. That's a fun one. Yeah, That's a <laughs> That is. <laughs> that and farts are always funny, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did a sketch once in Schadenfreude that nobody wanted to do but me. But you could, you had to admit it was, it was funny. It was, uh, we, in the middle of the show, you know, we did about 10 sketches in the course of the show. In the middle of it, after one of our, you know, uh, big sketches, I come out and say, you know, and now we'd like to do a dramatic scene. Um, <clears throat> you know, we just, we understand, you know, we could come out here and do a bunch of laughs. But, we want to show you that we have range. We want to show you that we are deeper than a puddle. You know, anybody could come out here and do a bunch of jokes and stuff. So we would like to present this dramatic scene to show you our range. Uh, and it is, uh, it is called, you know, a father's promise or something like that. And I go, Oh, and 
I understand you did come to a comedy show, so we're going to do a dramatic scene. But of course, we're just going to play some fart sound effects just so you don't, you know, you don't get bored with this whole thing. And then we would do this dramatic scene and everything was punctuated with a fart. And God, that was funny. <laughs> um, I thought it was. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Sound or noise do I hate? Oh, my God. Motorcycles. Can we can we ban these things? I don't want to sound like the old fart, but I've been saying this for years. Nobody can go out in the street right now and yell as loud as a motorcycle and have anybody find it acceptable. But these motorcycles, they take the mufflers off and they drive through. And I mean, you're walking down the street. You're talking to a friend. I'm talking at this volume. I can be talking at this volume. And we have to stop talking for that for what freedom? For that guy's joy and having a loud motorcycle? I mean, I don't even know how it became acceptable. It just seems like, well, I mean, if you want to move out to the country, I get that. You can shoot guns in the country. You can't shoot a gun out here in the street. It's loud and it's dangerous. This motorcycle is not dangerous, except to that guy. But, but you know what? I don't think I should also have in my head the thought, I hope that guy wrecks. Like, that's mean. Like, because he's so loud, I'm like, I hope he crashes. I hope you crash. When a car goes by so loud, so fast, you're like, I hope you crash. Oh, my God. I mean, why would I think that? So I just, if it was always illegal to be that incredibly loud, like if I if I put a tornado siren up on my, up on my house, could I run it twice a day the same way motorcycles come by? No. Why? Because it's loud. And yet that, that standard doesn't apply to motorcycles. You know, I mean, for some reason, there's some sort of freedom that we're protecting. The freedom to not have mufflers. Find that in the Constitution. Hate it. <laughs> oh, uh, what is your favorite curse word? Hmm. Motherfucker. Motherfucker, you mother, you mother, and I call things motherfucker. That's what's so dumb. Yeah, you're trying to plug something in, you knock something over. Yeah, I, I, that, it's definitely motherfucker. Cause like you know, you you'll go to get a glass out of the cabinet, and things will just always be perfectly stacked. So that when you grab the one thing, twelve things fall. Like when that happens, I just go motherfucker. But I'm just what? It's that difficult. I'm just trying to pull one thing out of there, and everything has to fall. Motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, what profession other than yours would you like to attempt? Uh, well, I mean, my current profession would be video editor and it would definitely be uh, filmmaker, you know, producer. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm good at all that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I really got good over the years at, at directing. I mean, it's been my interest forever. I've studied it forever and I've worked for so many directors who suck and you just go, Oh, that guy somehow accidentally got to direct this movie because he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, that gets really frustrating. And uh, but, you know, also, I'm like, I'm a Midwestern kid. So if you're like, I'm not going to go out and be like, I'm the greatest in the world. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I've studied it. I'm pretty good. At this. But I'm actually quite good at it. I really enjoy doing it. And like every once in a while, something would come along. Like my friend was introducing an app a few years ago, a friend of a friend. And, um, you know, I just threw out there. I'm like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a director. Just show him a couple of my shorts and stuff like that. And he's like, hey, could you do a commercial for me? And it was so much fun. And I am a very good director and I, I wrote and directed it as well. And also the great thing is 
my writing can be very uh, dense. And I do love a good dense joke, but very few people can speak the dense jokes I write. And I have to be careful when I'm giving scripts to other people that I have to rewrite it to de-densify it. But over the course of eight years of doing the movie Showcast, if you look at any of the previews we did for, for coming attractions on that, I write these incredibly dense jokes that Paul, Karen, and Bart could and Steve could rip off. They could whip them out. And I'm like, I don't know how you say this stuff that I, I'm writing last minute, you know, before the show. Um, so I wrote this very dense uh, sketch uh, uh, commercial. It's like a long form commercial, like five minutes. And I was like, after I was done writing, I was like, well, who's going to be able to say this stuff? And I was like, I got it. I'm the director. I'm hiring Paul, Karen, Bart. I hired all the movie guys and uh, other comedians from uh, from Chicago and put this uh, commercial for this app together and then put the whole production together. I was like, oh, I forgot I could do this. You know, I found a location. And, th and the funny thing is, you know how I'm talking about how people come back into your life and how you, you know, never be mean to anybody. Always be the best friend to everybody because they'll come back and they'll help you. You're going to need their help later on. Never, never beat anyone up to get up that ladder. It's not a ladder worth climbing. You know, be nice to everybody up that ladder <clears throat> and be a, be a good person. I mean, people like me. I just, I come off well in a room because this is who I am. But um, funniest story, my prom date from high school had a winery next door to where we shot. And I ran into her and I said, are there any other spaces open around here? And she goes, well, I'll give you my landlord's name. We found a good price. We found a nice little spot and we shot this commercial. And I was like, wow, I put a whole production together, which, you know, I used to do a lot and it's hard. And unless you have money, it's real hard. And uh, so, yeah, so director. I, and I will be a director. I, I will be making movies and stuff like that. I just not doing it right now. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Uh, I would hate to go back to work at the recycling plant. That was uh, one day I had a summer job at Miami University and uh, kind of an odd little, I mean, odd nightmare scenario for what it was, was that I was supposed to get on the truck. Uh, I was a mover at Miami University. Um, <clears throat> actually, here's the weird twist of fate. All of my friends at Miami University had lawn mowing jobs in the summer. You would go mow the grass. And this is heaven for me. My, heaven for me is putting on my headphones, listening to an audio book or a commentary at that time. Um, sometimes music, but, you know, also, but like lessons and learning and this sort of stuff and just zoning out for hours and mowing lawns at the university lets you do that. You put your headphones on, you'd meet at the morning and they go, hey, you go mow North Quad, you go mow South Quad. And everybody would split off for the day. And my friends told me, you'd, you'd finish mowing and there's nobody around to watch. You just sit under a tree, whatever, do, do whatever, uh, read, a, read a book, do whatever. So I went to my neighbor because he worked for facilities. And I said, oh, I said, but my neighbor works for facilities. Wrong facilities. He worked in trucking and moving on campus, which was doing all the work of a mover for $3 an hour. It's like, oh. So all my friends went off and had the posh job. And I was like, and I'm moving furniture. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, it, it was, I mean, again, I, as I say about all my jobs, beats working, you know, I mean, it, it, there could be black topping, uh, a, a roof in the summer sounds like a terrible job and I've never done it. But, uh, but so, but one day weirdly, and this is how I can also sink into the background and not be Mr. Not be Adam Witt all the time. You know, sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm like, if I'm in a situation where I'm kind of in over my head or whatever, 
And I guess I sort of sloughed myself into the background enough to end up on the wrong truck to the wrong place. Uh, and I ended up in a working a recycling plant for the day. And I wasn't supposed to go out there. I was supposed to go with the trucking and moving. But I just I just, just sort of like hemmed and hawed and not paid attention to when they said, hey, uh, everybody for this go here, everybody for this go here. And that goes back to Adam Witt, who would sit in the back of the class and play with Star Wars action figures. And then they would call his name and be like, what are we talking about? You can't answer the question? You're not listening? I'm like, no, because this bores me. Uh, I was bored back then. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, working at a recycling plant. What job wouldn't I want to have? Because, I mean, I've had office jobs, and I think office jobs I could have made work. That's not the worst thing in the world. I had some good office jobs. So I think, yeah, I mean, working in the recycling plant, um, working in a smelly plant, I think a smelly, dirty plant um, with no air conditioning. You know, I mean, you're just you're there all day. You're sweating. You're starting to smell like garbage. Um, that's a tough job. That's a really tough job. And I, I guarantee that the people I was working next to, um, they had to come back the next day. And that's was that was a tough, tough job. So I wouldn't want to go back to the recycling plant. And I admire anybody that works in plants and you know my whole family is gm plants and everything like that so yeah it's probably not for me i know i could do it i could do anything i mean because I, I i you know I, I i've suffered and sweated and you know did i haven't lived the most posh life i've done i've dug ditches i've you know i've i've done i've dug holes and post holes and things like that i've done I've done all the stuff, but uh, yeah, you know, and making movies is is the struggle that I would prefer to do, you know. Which still, there's no air conditioning. You're out on set, and you got all kinds of other stuff, other problems. But those are problems I love, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, sir, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the? Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, that's, uh, I, you know, I've never thought of an answer to this question, and an answer came very quickly. Um, so I get to heaven, and God sees me and says, oh, hey, big fan. <laughs> Adam Witt, big fan, big fan. <laughs> okay. Adam so, Witt, I am a big fan, too. Oh, God um, bless you. You don't know how, how well that makes my day. As, as a, you know, a kid who was, you know, I... Um, you know, I mean, it was kind of the nerd bullied, you know, none of that stuff was kind of cool back then. Um, so, you know, and I have, you know, I think we all have lots of trauma from various parts of our life and stuff. And it's still quite easy for me to get down on myself and even after a huge accomplishment or something. Uh, and so, you know, when I, I hear stuff like that, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it because I'm just doing my art. I'm just doing my nonsense. And, uh, and, and it means a lot to hear you or and on some of these other reaction shows I'm on and people say they're a big fan or in the comments say they're a big fan. I'm like, it just really, and it's really turned some of my days around, you know, doing an interview like this. Uh, you know, I, I, there was, the, there was a, a interview I did like this on one of the reaction shows like two months ago where I had had a terrible, just depression, just something, it, not even sprung from anything, like seasonal, something just got down on myself and just spent the day saying, oh, I'm just such a piece of shit. And what, you know, you know, just all this bad thoughts that go through your head that, you know, you can't control and you have to work through. And I went on one of these shows and I came off of it going, I, I'm, I, 
I'm great at this. I'm a good person. I'm, this, all of my, uh, every path I've taken to this moment has really mattered and I make a difference to people. So thank you so much. It really, it really makes a, a big difference. And I, I know, you know, you've had other people from the Schmodown and I think all of us are gregarious, open people, love the crowd and love to entertain people, stuff like that. But I think we all walk away and go, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> yep. Don't we all, sir? Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much again for your time. And yeah. this has been just absolutely great, especially being able to talk about locations and places that, uh, that we've both experienced. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun. Boy, you jogged my memory on a few things there. That's, that's, that's cool. That's, that's fun. Yeah. And I can go on and on about that sort of stuff. So you have allowed me to go on and on. What, what are we at an hour, hour 40 here? Yeah. But, uh, Hey, maybe we'll do a part two, but, uh, until that time, uh, thank you again for your time and everyone, have a great and safe week. Thank you. Be sure to check out Speaking of Schmodown, a sports talk show devoted to the movie trivia Schmodown airs Saturdays at 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time here on the Jcast Network.